Wee, that was awesome. <laughs> Don't you love that Waymaker song? Whew. Good night, more like Haymaker. It knocks you out, doesn't it? Um, today we're, um, we're going to, of course, continue our study of Luke. And uh, we're going to look at Luke 13 and verses 6 through 9. I'm going to read to you that, uh, that parable. And we're going to look today at the subject of fruitfulness. What is it that Jesus is looking for? And what is the meaning of fruitfulness? What does it mean to be fruitful as a person, as an individual? Here in Luke chapter 13 and verse 6. Then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So here is a very simple parable. It's a, it's a parable within the situation that Jesus was dealing with that perhaps reflected on his own sense of frustration, his own sense of heart-rending sadness for the people of Israel. Just in a few more verses, by the time we get to the end of this month, we'll be looking at Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, foreseeing the catastrophic events that will lead to the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, a situation that exists even to this day. Jesus will see these things and in his heart, is already sensing these things. And he looks on the faces of the people listening to him. And he says, God is looking for one thing. God is looking for one thing. Do you notice that, that when Jesus tells the parable, the man who owns the fig tree doesn't ask why is it not beautiful? Because the owner of the fig tree is not interested in what it looks like. Notice that the owner of the fig tree doesn't, doesn't point out that the leaves are perhaps withered or less green than they are normally or perhaps the branches are not as noble and well-defined as other trees. Notice that it's nothing to do with the appearance or the stature or even, or even the capacity of the tree to offer shade that the owner of the tree is interested in. He's interested in one thing. He's interested 
in fruit. Now, it's tremendously important that if Jesus goes to the trouble of reiterating this message over and over again, and in his final words to his disciples, indicates what it is that is the priority that he places upon them as he returns to heaven, to his Father, and to send the Holy Spirit upon his disciples. It's quite clear that this is a subject for us to attend to with a measure of seriousness and sobriety. What does being fruitful actually mean? Well, if you are, of course, using what we looked at a few weeks ago, if we're using what's called the biblical hermeneutic, the 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 method of understanding the Bible by interpreting the Bible by Scripture itself, which is the most consistent way to understand the Bible. Then you would look in the Bible to places where the theme of fruit is first indicated. If you go to the very first book of the Bible, you find there in chapter 1 and verse 28 the first blessing that God pronounces over humanity. Now remember, this is the final day of God's creative activity. Not the last thing that he ever did, because of course that would mean that the universe would fall into nothingness, but in terms of the process by which God created this world, and placed us in the preeminent position that he wanted us to be in as his rulers and representatives. And when he blesses us with that calling, it simply says this, God said, be fruitful and fill the earth. Be fruitful and fill the earth. So the minimum interpretation of the word fruit is to reproduce yourself. It's often used as a synonym for children. There's a simple way in which people obviously reproduce themselves. And so reproduction is at the very heart of the understanding of fruitfulness from the very beginning. God said, be fruitful. When you're sitting there in front of the TV and um, you're, you're wondering what to do next, some of you have got these smart watches. I mean, you know, it's a struggle for me to find myself even describing myself as smart, but now I've got smart phones and I've got smart watches and I've got, you know, all kinds of things. And uh, this watch is such a nag. It's such a nag. Because I'll be, I'll be watching my favorite TV show with Sally, and then I get this little buzz on my wrist. And it, it, it'll, I'll look down, it'll say, you can still do it. I'm thinking, what? What can I still do? You can reach your activity aim for the day. And I thought, 
I didn't set an activity aim for the day. But my watch did. My watch set the aim for my day. And it says, just stand up and walk around for a minute. This is my watch talking to me. You see, you and I, you and I are designed to do certain things and rightly so, these smart devices remind us that human beings are actually not designed to sit down. One of the problems for us is that, is that perhaps we spend too much time doing that. We're designed for action, activity, movement. But one of the things that we are most certainly designed for is fruitfulness. We're designed to be productive. We're designed to do something with our life that you can say, there's a product of my life. When God said, let there be light, light came into being in the universe and continues to exist to this day. God did not withdraw the word, let there be light, and for that reason there is light in this room at this moment. The reason that you desire to achieve something, to leave a legacy, to pass that examination, to achieve that target, whether it be intellectual, physical, relational, spiritual, whatever target it is, the reason that you want to do that is that at the very beginning of humanity's life, God spoke over Adam and Eve and the word has never been withdrawn. And the word he said, as the very first word that human ears would hear was, be fruitful. It's amazing, isn't it? Be fruitful. If that's the first word that God would speak over a human being, if that's the first word that he speaks over this marvelous creation that he calls his children, if that's the first word that would be heard by the very first man and the very first woman, then surely it has a preeminent place in the life of human beings to this day. And of course, it is the last word of Jesus before he returns to heaven. It's the first word of creation and it's the last word of redemption. Because Jesus, on his way to heaven, to sit at his Father's side, could have said anything. He could have said, read your Bible every day and go to church on Sundays. He could have said, be sure to be nice to your parents and kind to children. Instead, he said, go and make people who are like you. Make disciples. Be productive. 
Be fruitful. Now, occasionally, we get kind of subverted by our own spiritual intelligence. Because we, we look at the Bible and um, we think to ourselves, you know, that it may be more complicated than people like Mike say. You know, there's, there's other parts of the Bible that kind of talk about fruit and I don't know, I mean, maybe there's, maybe there's more to it than just being reproductive in the way that people like Mike say, hang on a minute, don't do that. Did I just knock that over? Sorry. I knew it was going to happen one day. I've been joking about it and now it happens. I better not joke about it again. So, I've been thinking about this because, you know, I, I hear this from people. They say, well, you know, there's, there's more than one interpretation of fruit in the Bible. And um, the answer to that is, no, there isn't. It's about Eminem. Um, I like Eminems. Um, but, um, but when you look at the New Testament, there are basically two big passages that you need to look at to understand what the New Testament means about fruitfulness as it interprets what the word fruitfulness has meant through this great theme as it's appeared through the gospel story. Beginning at the very beginning with God's word over humanity, the word fruit has come up over and over again. And so people will look at the New Testament and say, okay, well maybe, maybe what I should be doing right now is focusing on the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah? Anybody ever had that thought run through their mind? The fruit of the Spirit. So let's just, um, let's just look at that together right now. Because I think it's important that, that we, we really look at this carefully. Because so often we'll get tripped up by our own use and understanding of the Scriptures. Now, fruit means reproduction. Fruit means producing something and at the basic minimum it means producing children. Whether those children be of natural birth or relational birth or spiritual birth, they are they are children. So, let's look at this passage and let's make sure that we understand what it is that it's saying here. Here we are in Galatians chapter 5, and I'm going to read from verse 22. But the fruit, do you notice that it doesn't say fruits? It's just fruit. We're not talking about the multitude of different possibilities here, it's just the fruit. If you like, the children of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. 
Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So now we have the New Testament talking about fruit. And I've often heard people say to me, well, you know, Mike, I think that this is a little bit of an overemphasis, this thing that you're always focusing on making disciples, that, that really the, the main task of a, of, a, of a Christian is to make disciples. What about, what about living in the fruit of the Spirit? And I say, that's absolutely, that's absolutely correct. The problem is, is that it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of you that's being talked about. Do you notice that? I think it actually says it right there. It says that the Spirit within you will reproduce himself in a particular way. And the particular way that he will reproduce himself is in a way that the Bible would call perfect or, or complete or mature. That's why there are seven expressions of fruit. It's always the number of completeness or maturity or perfection. Perfection, completeness, maturity, they're the same word in the New Testament. And so the Spirit working in us, and we've looked at the work of the Spirit, haven't we, in these last few weeks, the work of the Spirit within us will produce His fruit, His children within us. He has seven children. And those seven children will live in our lives and you'll hear the pitter-patter of footsteps throughout your heart and one you'll call love and the other you'll call joy, another you'll call peace. Do you get it? Your life will be full of the Spirit and the Spirit will reproduce himself and as he reproduces himself, you will become a more complete, a more, a more perfect, a more mature recipient and conduit of his life. Because the Holy Spirit wants to do the thing that he wants you to do. You see, he's not asking you to do anything that he's not done already. God is always consistent. God is always wanting to ensure that you understand that anything he asks you to do, he's already in the business of doing. And so he's saying this, I want you to be reproductive. I want you to produce yourself in the lives of others because I'm already doing it in your life. The Holy Spirit, present in our life as the great gift of the death and resurrection of Jesus that caused us to be in union with God if we have faith in what it is that Jesus has done for us. And that union with God means that our hearts are now 
the recipient, the receptacle, the place where God dwells by his spirit. And as he dwells in us by his spirit, he will inevitably bring about a transformation. Do you wake up some days and think, I don't know, was I a Christian yesterday? Do you ever ever think like that? You know, you've been grumpy with everybody and cranky with your spouse and not sure that you really believe much anymore. Only me? (laughs) Only me? Here's the amazing thing. Here's the amazing thing. You can't stop God even if you want to. How about that? You could stop him for a while. You know, you can be a real pain in the wherever you want to, you know, identify the pain. I meant neck. I meant neck. You can be a real pain. You can, you can resist God, but you can't resist God forever. Do you know why? Because he's God. And here's the thing. God living in you, God living in me, is going to produce love. He's going to produce joy. He's going to produce peace. Of course he is. Because he is love and his presence, of course, will reproduce love. And you'll find yourself unwittingly, unwantingly, Loving the people you don't like. Don't you hate that? You want to be grumpy with them. You want to hold out that kind of, you know, bitterness. But somehow, sometimes it's a long time, you know, it's a blowtorch on an iceberg, but it's, but it's an inexorable process. Love is born in our hearts because it's the irresistible reality of his presence. And of course, we're always caught out, aren't we? Because it causes us to feel joy. I don't know which Scottish preacher it was. It may have been dear old Robert Murray McShane who said, joy and peace are deeply connected because when joy sits down for a moment it's always in peace but when peace gets up to dance it's always in joy and so these are simply expressions of the presence of God within us And it's his fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So let's look at the other, if you like, most popular passage in the New Testament that deals with fruit. And let's turn to John chapter 15. Jesus, you'll remember, has just completed his conversation with the disciples around the Last Supper. 
and the very last words of chapter 14, in which he has been speaking about the promise of the Holy Spirit, where he's been speaking about about the fact that he that is with you will be in you. The very last words of chapter 14 are, come on, let's get out of here. And so as Jesus is walking through the streets of Jerusalem, crowded and swelled by the numbers of pilgrims who've come for Passover, a Passover that will be marked this year, not simply by the Passover lambs, but by the Passover lamb that will be offered for everyone. And as Jesus walks from the heights of Jerusalem towards Temple Mount, he of course can see this most amazing of buildings. Surely one of the wonders of the world. It's clad in white marble. And it's picked out by the flames of a thousand candelabra surrounding Temple Mount. And there, carved into the white marble, overlaid with gold and silver, is the symbol of Israel. I took a vine out of Egypt, the psalmist says in Psalm 80, and I planted it in the land of Canaan. And Jesus, as he's walking past the temple with that image there as a visual aid for his disciples, he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I will abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain, unless you abide in me. And then in in verse eight, he says this. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And then in verse 16, he says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Jesus makes it absolutely abundantly clear that we are interconnected with him, that the Father is serving his purposes in his Son, and we who, by the blood of the eternal covenant, have been made one with him, are the branches of the vine. But Jesus makes it absolutely clear It's unequivocal, it's unmistakable. You cannot come to a different conclusion. The purpose of the branch is to bear fruit. 
and it is to the Father's glory. And so it's important, of course, that we bear the fruit of the Spirit. But it's also important that we bear fruit from our own lives. Maturity is a good thing. Multiplication is a good thing. God will bring about the maturity because he will be fruitful. There's no question about that. Will we be fruitful? Well, you have to you have to settle with this question this morning. I remember when this became a driving passion for me in my early 20s when Sally and I were just starting out. We were just beginning to have our own children and start our own family. We were just beginning in full-time ministry. We were working in different communities throughout England. And it became so clear to me that the church was good at so many things except the one thing that Jesus was looking for. We were good at worship. It was, we were great at prayer. We were wonderful at doing all kinds of different activities that had grown up as specialisms within different congregations. But when you asked yourself, are the people of the congregations actually making disciples? The answer was so often and so obviously no. There were some quick fix solutions. We thought, let's get an American evangelist in. Surely that'll solve all our problems. But of course, but of course, asking a professional to do the work that you're called to do just as an ordinary everyday Christian is not the answer that is the answer that Jesus would give. The Great Commission doesn't say this bring people to listen to a great preacher. And then bring them again. And then maybe find somebody else who'll come along too. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm delighted that you're all here this morning. I'm surprised that there are so many, quite frankly, because I, you know, I can remote, remember many mornings when clocks change, waking up in a dead sweat thinking, oh my goodness, I've missed the whole thing. <laughs> and there are people right now at this moment doing that, and God bless them. It's a, terrible, it's a terrible feeling and don't make them feel bad through the week. You can shame them on social media if you want, but don't, you know. Jesus did not indicate anywhere in the Great Commission or in any of the parables that point toward fruitfulness 
that our task as ordinary followers of Jesus is to get somebody else to do the difficult bits. Our task is to be reproductive. Our task is to reproduce what it is that we have become in the lives of others. And what this, of course, really focuses in on is our confidence. It focuses in on our, our sense of inability, our, our sense of incapability. How can we do something that seems so difficult. I mean, if it were easy, everybody would be doing it. But you see, if that's where the conversation gets to, then we're probably not gonna get any further than we are right now. Because of course it's hard. Nothing that's of any significance is ever easy. But why don't we approach it this way? Why don't we say this? Jesus, he really loves me. And he really wants the best for me. And if he would make this such a significant thing, it must be because it's an expression of his love to me. And if I actually saw it happen in my life, would be a further demonstration of his love to me. Why don't we look at it like this and say, if Jesus is really interested in this, he must be really interested in helping me with this because that's the kind of Jesus that I know. And so of course I feel weak, of course I feel vulnerable, of course I feel scared, of course I feel incapable. But that will perhaps cause me to lean on him harder. And in leaning on him harder, maybe I'll come to know him better. And surely that would be a good thing. Is anybody, is this working? Everybody listening to me? It's gone very quiet in here. Is this making sense to anybody? We believe that Jesus loves us, don't we? We believe that he's kind beyond measure. That he doesn't want, he doesn't want us to feel guilt. He doesn't want us to feel shame. He doesn't want us to feel fear and he doesn't want us to be prompted into action out of guilt, out of shame or out of fear. And so there's a disconnect somewhere because if this is so important that it's the first word that God speaks over his created children and it's the last word that Jesus speaks before he returns to heaven. It's got to be important. And if it's that important to Jesus, surely 
Surely Jesus is going to help us. And maybe he's going to help us if we make ourselves available to his help. And maybe in our frustration and vulnerability, and we say to him, Lord, I see it, I understand it. I I get that it's an incredible priority in your heart. And I know that that means that by me seeing it, I'm going to see more of you. And by seeing more of you, my life is going to be more transformed than what it is already. All of that is true, Lord, but I don't know how to do it. If in saying that, we lean into Jesus more and find him to be even more trustworthy than we've known him before, then surely that's a good thing. You see, I don't think Jesus wants us to feel shame or guilt this morning, but he does want us to feel desperate. He wants us to feel desperate. He wants us to face our weakness and our vulnerability because he's giving us something we can't do without him. And he says it's really important. It's not a secondary issue. It's a primary issue. So this morning, my question to you is the question that Sally and I will be sharing, I hope, with every grace possible with the house churches as we visit them over these coming weeks. What are you doing And with whom are you doing it to make disciples? What are you doing to make disciples? And with whom are you doing it? Is it your neighbor? Is it your work colleague? Well, think about your work colleague. I mean, people at work, is there there someone at work who just burdens your heart when you see them? Is there someone who maybe isn't the most popular person around, but, but you know that, that if you extended some degree of kindness, they would respond, and maybe you're a little afraid that, that they'll become overly dependent upon you? Is there, is there someone within, within your wider experience beyond the permanent relationships of your, of your family, of course, who you're praying about pretty much all the time. But those more passing relationships, are there people that you regularly pass who you think, there's something about that person that I need to ask Jesus to help me with? Is there a way that I can offer a word of kindness Is there a way that I can offer a a gesture of service? Is there a way that, that, that the spirit in me, bearing fruit in me, can be manifest so that this other person can see Jesus maybe a little more clearly? What, what do we need to be doing and with whom? And this week, can we pray to that effect? 
can we be praying this, this day for this day and the day after of what is it that Jesus wants me to do for my neighbor, for that shut-in, for the person down the street who seems to be kind of open to me for some unaccountable reason. Have, have you noticed that? People just smile at you. It's the weirdest thing, isn't it? Here's, here's what Sally and I have generally done. This is a what that I would encourage you to think about. We tend to go to the same stores, to the same gas station, and to the same coffee shops all the time. Do you know why? Because we like people, and we want to get to know them. And eventually, you do get to know them. And eventually, they get to know you. But you see, the real tendency in us is to be caught up in the consumer world and you go to the newest place or to the coolest place or to the place that's offering the best deal or whatever it is instead of the place where you can build the relationship. And it's so often that we don't see that person that's serving. It's so often that we miss the person and we forget their name. I'm terrible with names. But, but if you start going to the same places, you'll start seeing the same faces. And maybe they're the ones that the Lord wants to bring in. Who knows? There's a girl up in West Virginia today going to her local little Baptist church who we met as a barista near Myrtle Beach. We went there every day. We saw her every day. Eventually, she wanted to pray with us. Eventually, she wanted Sally to disciple her. Eventually, she wanted more and more of our life. And eventually, she went home back to Snowshoe. And we saw her up there just a few months ago. It was amazing. Just this little practice of going to the same place with the same people, with the intention in your heart of sharing who you've become.